Good evening to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we got halfway through the chapter last week, and uh, we'll pick things up this week, uh, beginning in um, verse 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 18. Beautiful, beautiful event in the, the life of uh, John the Baptist. His, uh, really an incredible crisis of faith. And boy, it's the kind of thing that the Lord would, because He is so careful to hide our failures. Um, when we see this failure of John here, I think the only reason it must be included in the Scriptures is because um, of how important what it has to say uh, to each of us as, as Christians. And the context of it is in verse 18, then the disciples of John reported to him, that is John the Baptist, concerning all of these things. In the context of this, as we saw last time, was Jesus making his way in a time of tremendous popularity in his ministry into the city of Nain. And as he and his entourage, a very large group of followers, are entering into the city, there is another large group of followers associated uh, with a, a widow of Nain who has now lost her uh, only child, and they're going out to bury him. And Jesus takes and stops the procession, as D.L. Moody put it. He uh, ruined uh, every funeral service he ever went to. And, and he raised the boy from the dead. And, uh, and so this was the news that John's disciples became aware of, along with all of the other miracles that Jesus was doing. And they brought that news to John the Baptist. And you think to yourself, why in the world would they need to bring that news to John the Baptist? John the Baptist's current circumstances are that he is imprisoned by King Herod. And John the Baptist, uh, in the course of his prophetic ministry, he was as uh, fearless and as faithful a spokesman for God, whether out in that Judean wilderness or whether he was in a king's palace. And he confronted Herod with his adulterous relationship with Herodias and uh, who was the wife of his brother. And he took his brother's wife and married her, and now involved in this adulterous relationship. And uh, John the Baptist confronted him related to the sin of that. Herod wanted him initially to put him to death immediately. But he recognized that John was so popular among the common people that he might have an insurrection on his hand, so he imprisoned John. So John sits now, presently, in the prison of Herod and incarcerated for simply being faithful to God, simply doing a good thing, doing a righteous thing, and the very thing that God had called him to do. And so this news comes to him as he is in the confinement of that, that incarceration, and he's hearing about all of these things that Jesus is doing uh, in the land, including raising people from the dead. And John then called two of his disciples to him, and he sent them to Jesus uh, with a message. And the message that he wanted them to deliver to Jesus is, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
Are you the Messiah, or are we still looking for the Messiah to come? Wow. So his faith in Jesus is absolutely being rocked at this point in his life. And for all of his, God's use of him, uh, the anointing of the Spirit in his life, all of the fruitfulness of his life, he comes to a place now where he doubts that Jesus is uh, the called, uh, the, the promised Messiah, the chosen one. And he doesn't doubt that he is the Messiah based upon all of the miracles that he's performing. He believes all of that. What makes him doubt that Jesus is the Messiah is that he has been faithful to God and here he is locked up in a prison and Jesus has not come to spring him from that unjust incarceration. And I, I think that his great crisis of, of faith has to do with what I would call and others would call uh, the crisis of unmet expectations related to God. When you find yourself in a situation, in a great trial, in a great difficulty in life, and you say, okay, I'll give God a little time to work this out. I'm in this pickle because I did the right thing on the job. I did the right thing in my marriage. I did the right thing in raising uh, my children or whatever it might be. And then here are the consequences. Well, okay, we can't expect, uh, you know, uh, blue skies every day as a Christian in, in that regard. And so we'll give him time to turn the circumstances around. And then he doesn't. And then he doesn't in our timing. And here is, is John, the thing that works on him is when he hears all of those miracles, he's so caught up in, in these, the trial that he's in, he doesn't even recognize that all that Jesus is doing is an evidence of the fact that he is the Messiah. All he can think about is, if he was the Messiah, he would come and he would break me out of this unjust um, imprisonment. And, and for John to have a crisis of faith like this, I, I mean, very, that's a considerable thing given his, uh, 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 given his background. You remember that uh, as he was... Uh, in, 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 even before he was born, as he's in his mother's Elizabeth's womb. When Mary shows up at the house, he does a somersault in, in Mary, in Elizabeth's womb, at the very voice of the mother who was then carrying Jesus. John had been, had baptized Jesus at the Jordan River, at the place that he started his public ministry, and where he had confirmed him to be the Messiah to, to the multitudes. And, and in that very place of that baptism, he had heard God the Father declare concerning the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, G, and John the Baptist had continually turned his disciples to cease following him and to follow uh, Jesus himself. He said, I'm just a forerunner. I'm not even worthy to untie the latchets of his sandal. Don't follow me. He's the Messiah. Go follow him. John would, would say to his disciples additionally, I, uh, he must increase and I must uh, decrease. And you would think that someone 
who would have that kind of history with God and that kind of spiritual privilege that he could have all kinds of crises in life, but he would never have a crisis of faith in his life. And yet he did. And yet he did. And I could hope to pray that uh, each and every one of you would never, ever be put uh, in, in praying carnally, by the way, uh, put in the kind of a trial in life where the circumstances are so unjust, they're so overwhelming, you know that God could change them in a moment, and He doesn't. And then it can cause even the strongest saint to doubt whether God is real, to doubt whether Jesus is real, or that Jesus is the Messiah. And you may sit here this, this evening, and you may think anybody that would be moved by a trial like that, uh, having been born again, must be a lightweight. And I just say, you watch yourself, buckaroo, because those trials come, and uh, they can really create difficulty for a child of God. It is important for us to realize, and, and of course, unmet expectations are expectations that we bring to our Christian life that are our expectations, but not what we are told will be the Christian life in the Scriptures. As Jesus said, you will have tribulation uh, in, in the world, but be of good cheer, as Pastor Ken already shared in the, as, he, as he opened in prayer, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that we will be spared hardship. When Jesus writes to one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, He says to them, in the midst of the kind of difficulty they're going through, He said, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. I'm not going to come and rescue you. I'm not going to pull you uh, out of this. I'll see you in heaven next, and uh, so to speak. But be faithful to me in the mess that I have put you in to glorify me unto the point of, of death. And we bring this idea that somehow, anytime some, a, a trial of you know, massive magnitude in our life, that somehow God is failing us or He is failing our promises. And yet, He isn't. And Jesus is going to drive home that point uh, to John the Baptist. So His servants, they came, and uh, when they had come to Jesus, they said to him, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or we, do we look for another? Now, one of the hard things about this is that they posed the question to Jesus in a public setting. So, a lot of people have now heard uh, what the crisis that John is in and uh, it, it wasn't just Jesus that, that heard the message that came from John. And Jesus doesn't answer uh, his, uh, uh, this question of John the Baptist uh, with any words immediately. He addresses him with actions. And, and in that very hour, what he proceeded to do as those two messengers were standing there from John, he cured many of uh, infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. So he just begins to heal and uh, cure people in, in the crowd that is all around him. 
And uh, Jesus then answered, and he said to them, Now you go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What Jesus says there in verse 22 is an encapsulation of verses from three different messianic uh, chapters in the book of Isaiah. And what he is communicating back to John is, John, I am not the Messiah based upon your personal expectations of how I will respond to every crisis in your life. I am the Messiah based upon the one unmoving thing in the world, and that is the Old Testament description of me in the Scriptures. John, this is an emotional thing that you're, you're going through. Your mind is going in all kinds uh, of, of directions here. And Jesus brings his, his faith back to the fact that Jesus, while he's failing John's expectations, he is meeting all of the expectation of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He's bringing his faith back to the Word of God. And that's ultimately what rescues us out of those kind of trials is that we come back to the Word. Like, like Peter said, where will we go? When Jesus said to them, will you leave me to the disciples? Where would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. There are no options to you out there. And just that fact keeps us in the saddle until all of a sudden, little by little, we see how God is working this whole thing together for good in order to make us a little more like Christ. And then we begin to see, ah, He is fulfilling and being faithful to His Scriptures on a level I hadn't even begun to consider. And so that was the word that he gave him. Come back to the word for your faith, uh, John. And then he declared, and blessed is he who is not offended uh, because uh, of me. And uh, John, blessed is the man or woman who doesn't stumble or fall away because of how I am using your life and what I have allowed uh, to come uh, into your life, and how needed that is within our lives. I can't tell you how many men and women in 35 years as a pastor in Modesto, California. It doesn't make me unique. It doesn't make Modesto unique. It doesn't make me unique as a pastor. But how many people I have known who have walked away from the Lord because a child died. Now, how hard is that? That's about as hard as it gets. You'd rather die and have your child live or some other crisis happen. And if God was real, this would never happen. But that's not the promises that we have in the Word of God. It isn't to minimize the greatness of, of the loss, the greatness of, uh, of, of the trials, but the importance of not being stumbled by what God is doing in, in our lives and falling away because we bring an expectation that is not biblical to our Christian life. We're not in heaven yet. One day we'll be in heaven. One day we will be in heaven. Think about that. But we're not in heaven yet. 
And as we saw that voice of the martyrs video this morning as a part of the morning services, they know they're not in heaven yet. And yet they continue with the Lord through all of that loss and all of that, uh, that, that horror. And so, uh, John the Baptist, and when Jesus says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me, John's circumstances would not get any better than they were. He would remain incarcerated, and then Herod would order him to be beheaded in a a drunken and lust-filled stupor. And that is how John the Baptist would enter uh, enter into heaven. And so, the, the messengers, uh, they departed there in verse 24, and then Jesus, and He is so careful about our reputations as Christians. He's so, he's so careful and delicate with John the Baptist. Because people, come on, John, I mean, like, you got every advantage at all. I mean, if you're going to ruin your reputation, don't expect me to bail it out on you. None of that at all. He knows that this has kind of become a public crisis now. And so, and he knows that God the Father had used John the Baptist in a massive way to impact uh, the people that were around him in the entire nation. And so now he is going to defend the reputation and the ministry of John the Baptist despite his, his uh, crisis here. And he then spoke to the uh, multitudes concerning John, and he said, what did you uh, uh, go out into the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, to see him preach and, and to be baptized uh, by him? A reed shaken in the wind? And of course they didn't. They were attracted out into that Judean wilderness because someone was speaking the Word of God with great boldness and anointing of the Holy Spirit. He said, but what did you go out to see, a man clothed in soft garments? Is that what you expected when you went out there? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and uh, and live uh, in luxury are in king's courts. Nobody went out thinking, oh good, we're going to get to see the latest in robes in in Jerusalem uh, in in the the fashion year. Uh, They expected him to be uh, clad in, in this camel hair and eating all of these crazy things that, that, uh, that, he was, that he was eating. And they recognized, here is a man who would rather wear camel hair and be faithful to God in a generation than to find himself in the comfort of some kind of palace having, uh, you know, conformed his message uh, to be acceptable to the rulers of, of the day. Now you went out to see a you went out to see a grown man, a grown saint, and but what uh, did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet. And this is he of whom it is written: Behold, I send my messenger before your place, and who will? Uh, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those who are born of of, uh, women, that there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Wow. So we're talking about Isaiah here, and Jeremiah here, and Elijah here, and Elisha, and, and all of this, the minor prophets, Daniel? And here Jesus makes this statement concerning John the Baptist. I mean, that is high praise. 
And, and what does he mean by that? He's not diminishing it, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. What he means is, is that John the Baptist had the privilege of personally introducing the Savior of the world, the Jewish Messiah, to the world, uh, the Messiah that the others had only prophesied of. It was a greater privilege uh, that, that was his. And then he, he goes on and he declares, but he who is least in the kingdom of God uh, is greater than he that is greater than, the, than John the Baptist. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God by virtue of putting our faith in Jesus Christ is, uh, is uh, we, ha- we enjoy spiritual blessings that are greater uh, than those who announced his coming and John the Baptist who announced his, uh, his, his arrival. And then the, the, uh, when all of, uh, and, and, and verse 29, and when all of the people heard Jesus speak this, even the tax collectors, they were there. So it's a pretty mixed audience that's here. They justified God. And the reason that they did, because they had been baptized with the baptism of John, they bore witness to the truth uh, of, uh, of the testimony Jesus was saying concerning John the Baptist, because that was their conviction concerning him as well. They were relieved to hear that nothing had really changed in Jesus's or God's assessment of, of John the Baptist because uh, of, of the crisis. But the Pharisees, uh, the, the legalistic uh, Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers who uh, were experts in the law of Moses, they, uh, they rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized uh, by him. So they rejected John's ministry and they rejected Jesus' testimony to him here. And so Jesus then decided that he would use this as a moment to speak to them. And he said, to what shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? And here he's speaking to the Pharisees and the lawyers. He said, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We mourned for you, and and you did not uh, weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He came as an ascetic, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came as just the opposite. He came eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the picture Jesus uses is uh, in the ancient world when uh, mothers and fathers, but mothers for the most part in the, in the course of a day, would bring their children uh, to the market to buy, uh, buy goods. There would be a plaza that, that would make up the, the marketplace, and while she would go in to buy the merchandise within the stores, all of the kids, they knew each other. I mean, you were born and you lived and you died in a village of 70 or 200. So they all knew each other and they would come and then the kids are, kids are going to make a game out of anything. And so they come together and they're not going to just sit around on their hands and so they would play. And the kids would get together and say, okay, let's play a wedding. 
Let's play celebration as he's talking about, we played the flute for you and, and you did not dance. Let's play wedding. And then there were certain of the kids who would say, I don't want to play wedding. And then the kids would say, all right, we'll go to the clear to the other end of the spectrum and, uh, and the, the morning and you did not weep. And we'll play funeral. How about that? Will you join in if we play funeral, if you won't play wedding? And yet uh, the, the children, uh, some of the children wouldn't engage. No matter what was suggested to them as a game to play, they refused to play it. And this is what he's talking about in in Jesus in ascribing all of this to John the Baptist and to himself. He's saying, no matter who God sends to you, he sends an ascetic, which you think would would appeal to your uh, legalistic uh, uh, kind of bent, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink, and, and he's absolutely strict about his life, and you reject him. And then uh, the Son of Man comes to you. The Son of God, the Messiah comes to you. He eats, He drinks, He's the opposite. You won't have anything to do with Him. And why is that? And Jesus is telling them it's because no matter who God sends, you won't be pleased. You can't be pleased because you don't want to be pleased. If you wanted to be pleased, you would be pleased with either John the Baptist or Jesus. But the fact that you reject them both, there's no one God can send to you that will be acceptable to you because they didn't want to be pleased. And why didn't they want to be pleased by no matter what kind of messenger God would send to him, uh, to them, or what uh, the personal characteristics or lifestyle of the messenger, it's because they didn't like the message. They didn't like the message. And there's a whole world of people today, and I've talked to many of them through the years of my Christian life, no matter who God sends to them, no matter if you talk to them about Jesus, talk to them about John the Baptist, talk to them about Daniel, talk to them about Paul, they don't like any of them because they can't be pleased. And at the core of it, they reject the message. And if they liked any of them, they would have to accept the message because they all carried the same message of salvation found uh, in, uh, in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus added on in, in what you know to be one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but wisdom is justified by all her children. And what Jesus was saying uh, to them is that wisdom in the world is justified. That is, it earns the right to be called wisdom by virtue of the quality of human being that that wisdom produces. And, And wisdom is not wisdom because it proclaims itself to be wisdom. Or there is an edict putting out, put out and saying, this is wisdom. Wisdom has to earn the right to be called wisdom, and it has to earn the right to be called wisdom in the nitty-gritty of daily life in this fallen world. And you look at the Word of God, you look at the wisdom of God, you look at the gospel, the commandments of God, 
and look at the quality of human being it produces without exception in every culture of the world. You can go to Russia, you can go to Africa, you can go to Brooklyn, you can go to anywhere you want in the world. And when a person is born again and begins to live under God's wisdom, you see them enter into a quality of life that they would, we would never otherwise know and is a witness to the fact that this is true wisdom in the world. There, when, I, when I look at, uh, you know, sometimes you get in conversations with people and they'll say, well, the Bible isn't the Word of God, it was written by men. I just, you've never read the Bible. Come on, you've read the Bible and you came to that conclusion. Who do you know that could write that? Who do you know? that is wise enough and smart enough and, and uh, knowledgeable enough to uh, write a single book of it. And, and so in terms of uh, speaking of the divine inspiration of the Word of God, you go to um, the, uh, the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures as a tremendous evidence related to the Word of God, the unity of the message from Genesis to Revelation concerning Messiah. But one of the things that I love so much as a witness to the, the veracity, the truthfulness, the inspiration of Scripture is the quality of human being it produces. And you just can't get away from that. And you look at how many people and, and, and have gone down so low in life or have had every obstacle in life put in front of them, made every wrong decision maybe in life, and they begin to walk with the Lord, and you see uniformly and universally what, this, the, what the quality of life that is produced. And it's a witness to the, there's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing that approaches it in the world. Not a hundred things that you could put together that even approach 5% of the effectiveness of what the Word of God uh, does and, and has done in the life of Christians in the world. Nothing approaches it. And, and a witness to the fact that this wisdom this is the wisdom that has earned the right to be called wisdom by virtue of the human being that it produces. And so Jesus uh, spoke to those religious leaders in their uh, rebellion uh, against God's word and against his, his messengers. And then in verse 36, then one of the Pharisees, he'll be identified as Simon in just a, a couple of verses, he asked Jesus to uh, come to his house and to eat with him. And uh, Jesus uh, went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Now, you'll never understand this passage if you picture uh, our dining rooms in the United States of America where we sit down, we've got this big table way up here and chairs, and hey, listen, I'm not complaining, I like it. And the older I get, uh, every joint hurts at this point, and, uh, and so I like chairs that uh, uh, keep you stupid up. But in those days, they would eat around what was called the triclinium, and it was a very, very low table off of the ground, and you would bend, the table is here with all of the food, and you would bend on your left arm, make a short meal for some of us, and here, and, uh, and then your legs would go out straight from you, and then you would eat your food off of the table, the triclinium. 
And so this is where he is uh, sitting and actually kind of uh, stretched out it, uh, with, with uh, Simon and with others that are uh, there to eat, the, enjoy the meal at the house. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And, uh, and this is when they, she's referred to as a sinner here. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, there's different terms that are like dog whistles and they're intended to say more than, uh, than is actually being said and all. Well, there's actually some truth uh, uh, to this. And uh, she was uh, probably, as this word is ascribed to her, it is highly likely that she was a prostitute in the town. And as we'll see a little bit later, a very well-known prostitute and, uh, and a, a, a great sinner. And Jesus himself even says, the, uh, though her sins are great, now they're forgiven. So she's a great sinner, whatever her sin is, but that was probably her sin. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of uh, fragrant uh, oil. And so she hears that Jesus is there, and so she comes to the house. You think to yourself, well, how in the world is she going to get any kind of access to Jesus? She wasn't invited. Jesus was invited. Doesn't it lock the doors and all of that? But in the ancient world, remember, they didn't have 145,000 television channels. And, uh, and the internet and computers and, uh, you know, getting uh, dinged with the latest headline and all of this kind of thing. So a lot slower, a lot, a lot quieter. So when you had a famous person come into your town or into your village, uh, that was an opportunity to hear the news about where he had come from. What's the news that's happened over here? To hear stories that are being told. Or if uh, the religious leaders were going to engage in a religious discussion, to listen in on it and to be uh, edified and to, to learn from it. And so what would happen is people would eat, uh, eat their meals, but the windows would be left open or the doors so that the n- neighboring community could come close and they could listen and hear. And it's not just 2,000 years ago. If you go to, uh, ever go to Windsor, England, and you go to Windsor Castle, and you do the tour of that, uh, one of the dining areas within Windsor Castle, an entire wall t- uh, toward the outside is made up of these little panes of glass. And the reason that they put those panes of glass uh, in that dining area is so that the people of Windsor, when there was an esteemed guest there or something was being discussed that was uh, uh, prominent, the villagers could come and they could see the guest and they could potentially listen to what was being said. So this isn't, a, this isn't an extraordinary uh, 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 kind of circumstance in the ancient world. And you notice that she brought an alabaster flax of uh, fragrant uh, oil. And so she comes, it's the only item that she brings uh, with her at all. And she's intent upon pouring it ultimately uh, upon Jesus. What that oil was and what it represented is, is it was very, very expensive. And... Um, almost certainly the most valuable thing that this woman owned in her entire life. And, uh, and she doesn't even blink here in pouring it out uh, on, on the Lord. It's the only thing that she has left in her life. It's the only thing that she owns that even approaches expressing the greatness of her love 
uh, toward uh, Jesus. And so she wanted to bless him with the most expensive thing uh, that, that she had. It wasn't unusual for a Jewish family or individuals to purchase an alabaster flask of, uh, of, uh, of spikenard as an investment. And the family would then give it to uh, a young woman within the family to uh, use as a dowry in, in her marriage, given as a wedding gift. And uh, this was probably given to her under those kind of circumstances. And here she is uh, later on in life. And she's on the other side of so many bad decisions within her life. I mean, one tragic decision after uh, another. And at this point, the decisions have buried her. And you put yourself in her place. She has no thought in her mind that she will ever present that alabaster flask of spark of oil to any husband that is going to have anything to do with her, that she will never marry. All of that is over for her, and she knows that uh, about her life. And something happened when she heard about Jesus that she decided, that's who I'm, that's the man, that's the man. I'm going to lavish this uh, gift upon. And so she approaches uh, Jesus, and, and we see there she stood at his feet, verse 38, uh, behind him. Again, we wouldn't understand it if we un- didn't understand that Jesus was lying uh, horizontal and his feet kind of curled behind him. She comes up and approaches him from behind. And uh, she doesn't dare, given who she is, approach him uh, from uh, head on, from the front, and and not wanting to scare him off from this act of worship that she wants to perform related uh, to him. And so uh, she stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and she began to wash uh, his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair uh, of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant uh, oil. She draws near, and, uh, and, and before she can even put the oil on, uh, on uh, anoint Jesus with the oil, she just loses control emotionally. Just the dynamic that is happening in her life, whatever Jesus means to her, however He has impacted her life, and we know a little bit further here in the passage that she has received the forgiveness of sins from Him. And that's what she's responding uh, to here. And so she brings this, uh, this uh, oil, and you ask, how in the world can you come to the conclusion that she's lost control emotionally or of the situation? She begins to weep. And she begins to weep to such a degree, so much tears coming, that she be- the tears begin to wash his feet. And then, if she had intended that this was what was going to happen to her, she would have brought a towel to then wipe his feet. But she brings no towel. She doesn't expect this uh, to happen with her. And she can't very well ask a Pharisee or someone in the Pharisee's house to get her as potentially a harlot to go get a towel to help clean up the mess that she has made. 
And so she's fumbling in the moment to try, and what can I do? I'm making a mess of this, this whole thing, not realizing she's doing one of the most beautiful portraits of the love of a forgiven sinner for a Savior in all of the Bible. And what does she have? She has her hair. And I mean, unheard of for a woman to let her hair down in that culture. And she begins to dry and try and dry off his feet and kiss his feet and then uh, an, uh, anoint, his, anoint him uh, with the oil. And just this beautiful, beautiful picture of this expression uh, of her love. And you would think everybody in the room would be moved by it. But when the Pharisee, Simon, uh, and, uh, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he spoke to himself. He never verbalized it. Uh, uh, most people of this kind, they won't. They keep these conversations private. Uh, but he, he said to himself, this was the assessment he made of that same situation. Talk about being off base. He said, this man, he won't even say Jesus' name. Not even in his mind. This is the level of, of antagonism on the part of the Jewish religious leaders toward Jesus at this point. He won't, he won't acknowledge him as a rabbi, won't acknowledge him as a prophet. He won't even say his name. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a, a sinner. And his idea is that no prophet, no man of God, much less uh, the Son of God, or much less the Messiah, if he was real, would ever let a sinner of this caliber uh, 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 approach him. And, and there's the, the, the contempt on his part, not just toward her, but toward him for allowing this to happen. And, uh, and Jesus did allow uh, it, it, it to happen. If you really were serious about God, you'd look down on uh, these kind of sinners. You would avoid, uh, uh, avoid them uh, altogether. And this is what he believes. And Jesus answered, wait a second. He never said anything. How can Jesus answer a question that nobody verbalized? Because he knows what we're thinking. And he knew what Simon was thinking as well. So he answers Simon. And he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And don't get the idea that Jesus doesn't love Simon. Uh, it, it, we'll see in a moment how un, inhospitable Simon was towards uh, Jesus. If Jesus hated Simon, he would have just uh, gotten up and walked out. He's trying to reach Simon with the gospel too. With, with the heart of God as well. And so he, he, uh, Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now look at that politeness. He's been disrespected in every way, as we'll see in a moment. And yet, the Bible says that agape love will not act uh, uh, rudely. And so he asked Simon, Simon, I'd like to say something to you. Would you give me permission? I mean, what a gentleman he is. And, and he's not all worked up in a frenzy or anything like that. You know, truth, facts are stubborn things. When you have the truth on your side, you can relax. When you have God on your side, you can relax. And so you, this situation is not out of control in any way. And Simon gave him permission. A teacher, say on. 
And he said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. They each owed the, the creditor the, the, the same uh, 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 money. And one owed him uh, 500 uh, denarii. Denarii was a day's wages. Let's say, um, you know, let's say $150,000. And the other owed uh, 50, so a tenth of that. And, and when they had nothing with which to repay, the, the creditor freely forgive them both. And tell me, therefore, uh, which of them uh, will love him uh, more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one uh, whom he forgave more. Now, that's, that's a pretty clear question. And... Uh, Simon's answer is right. Why would he say, I suppose? Why would he uh, feel constrained to qualify it in that way? Ah, that was the way of the Jewish religious leaders. And they would have these religious discussions back and forth and this and that until you were so confused about everything, including uh, the Bible and the Word of God, that you qualified everything, I suppose. Or uh, uh, you started quoting other rabbis so you wouldn't be responsible for the position that you took. And so he, he senses he's, uh, uh, might be being, that Jesus might be handling the Word of God in the way that the Jewish religious leaders did. And, and Jesus, this is no trap, Simon. And he said to him, you have uh, judged, uh, you have rightly uh, judged. And then he turned to the woman and uh, looks at her now full on, and, but he says this to Simon. He said, do you see this, uh, this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss to greet me, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And all of these were bare minimums uh, of... Um, of marks of hospitality in the ancient uh, Middle Eastern world. So when Jesus comes to dinner, he comes to this meal, and everybody who's gathered notice that none of the servants wash his feet, none of the, uh, uh, Simon doesn't greet him with a kiss, uh, nobody anoints his head with oil as a, a means of refreshment, then everybody realizes, ah, this is not real. This is a trap. This is a trick to try and find a fault in, uh, in Jesus. This is not a legitimate offer by Simon toward uh, Jesus. And so uh, he takes and he applies uh, 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 the, uh, the noticing all of the, the neglect on his part and, uh, and then how extravagant she had been in those same areas. And, and he concluded by saying, therefore I say to you, to you, uh, we know what you think about her, but I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Simon, okay. She owed 500 denarii to God in terms of the sin of her life. You owed 50 denarii in terms of the sin. You were a you've been a tenth the sinner that she has been in her life. But she has turned to God 
and she has received the forgiveness of God as it's manifest in, in her love for him. And now she has had the, hundred, uh, the uh, 500 denarii erased now from her account. And the only one of you two standing here before me and before God in the situation that owes anything to God in terms of your past sin is not her, it's you. You're in the hot seat. And it is the, the lack of love that you have toward God is an evidence that you have virtually no experience or no experience with His forgiveness. And the love that you're seeing gush out of her life, the expressions of it, are expressions of her gratitude for the forgiveness of her sins. And then he went on and said, uh, uh, Jesus turned his direction to her and said, your sins are forgiven. And he had already said that they were forgiven in verse 47. She came to him to express her thanksgiving, her worship for the forgiveness of sins she had already received. And so he reaffirms to her the forgiveness of her sins in this environment before all of these Jewish religious leaders. And then those who sat at the table with him, they began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Knowing that only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is divine. He's God the Son and has the authority to forgive sins. So this is the question that, that they were asking in their uh, one another and then Jesus said further to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace never think that this woman was saved on the basis of her love for Jesus that's to completely misunderstand what's happened here no one is saved on the basis of works we're all saved on the basis of faith and then when we receive forgiveness of our sins by trusting in Jesus for that forgiveness as our Savior, then we begin to express our love toward Him. And Jesus makes it clear, it is your, safe, your faith that has saved you. And then He said, go in peace. And it's even better in the original language, it is go into peace. And He tells her that in the middle of this entire room of people uh, that looked so down upon her. And the idea is when we receive the forgiveness of God, whether our background is like hers or worse or whatever uh, it, it might be, whatever people may think of us for the rest of our lives, whatever kind of peace we may or may not have with individuals, we have peace with God. And you ask me or you ask you about if you have a choice between the two, you'll always take the peace with God over the other. And that's what he was encouraging her. You go into peace. Go into the confidence of the complete forgiveness uh, of your sins. And this beautiful, beautiful picture uh, here in, in, uh, in the Scriptures, I think one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible, if not the greatest picture uh, of, of a portrait of the gratitude and the worship of, a, 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 of God uh, in gratitude for uh, forgiveness. 
I want you to just turn, you have to turn back a page if you've got the Bible that I'm using, but turn back to verse 38 just one more time as we introduce the Lord's Supper tonight. 